when we hear a story about someone who has laid down their life for someone else, what is it that makes that sacrifice so compelling and so beautiful and so moving? It might be the story of a parent who has laid down their life to protect their child, or perhaps someone in the military who lost their life protecting innocent civilians, or a dozen other scenarios. But what is it that moves us when we hear stories like that? Why do they grip us and often move us to tears? There are at least two answers to that question. The first one is the cost of the sacrifice. Part of what is so moving to us when someone lays down their life for someone else is we know that they are giving the most costly thing they can give. You only have one life, and you can only give it once. And in a sense, when you give that to someone, you also give them everything else. But it's not just the cost of the sacrifice that moves us. The other thing that moves us about such a sacrifice is the willingness, the decision, the determination, the choice to lay down your life for somebody else. It's no small thing, of course, when someone happens to die in a way that spares someone else, where they, they didn't have a choice, or it was, it was so sudden or accidental or whatever that it was not uh, necessarily intentional on their part. That is still moving, and that is still significant, but it is even more so when someone faces a choice to risk their life or not, to leave and live or stay and die, to put themselves between death and somebody else when they don't have to. When somebody does that, there's nothing more moving, nothing more meaningful that anyone can do. Jesus said, of course, there's no greater love that anyone has than that a man lay down his life for his friends. When Jesus himself laid down his life for us, it was both the cost and the willingness, the determination, the choice that made it so significant, so moving. There's more to it, of course, than that, but, but there's certainly not less. Jesus, the cost of Jesus' sacrifice was greater than anybody else's because of who Jesus is. Right? That Jesus is both God and man. He is God in the flesh. And so for Him, for God Himself to lay down His life, there is no greater sacrifice. There is no richer gift that anyone could give than that. But Jesus did not die for us on accident. Uh, Jesus died willingly, intentionally, purposely for us. And in a sense, His death was more willing, more intentional than anybody else's. Because Jesus could have escaped death at any moment. He said himself, I, I could call upon my Father and He would send legions of angels to deliver me if I just asked Him. Not only that, but Jesus as God, He didn't have to become man. Nobody forced Him to. He was not obligated to. He was not compelled 
by any outside force, right, to even be born as a man and live and die. He could have never died if he never became man. God in himself can't die, right? He is eternal. It was only possible for him to die after he took on flesh, and he took on flesh so that he could die, and he deliberately went to the cross in order to lay down his life for us. He said it this way in John chapter, seven, or John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Judas had no authority over Jesus. Pilate had no authority over Jesus. The religious leaders in Israel had no authority over Jesus, not ultimately. He was in control. He was in authority. He willingly, deliberately laid down his life for us, paying the greatest possible cost to achieve for us the greatest possible salvation. And that's what John highlights for us in the Gospel of John chapter 18. That's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. John 18 verses 1 to 14. So I invite you to turn there if you haven't already, and I'll read for us these verses. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So in the first several verses of John 18, John is highlighting for us the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross. Of course, we've seen how Jesus has spent uh, many of his final hours giving final instructions to his disciples and John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. John 17, he's praying um, 
asking God to glorify him, to, to keep his uh, disciples that he has kept, but now he is leaving. And that time of final instruction and prayer has come to an end, and Jesus is with his disciples in a place that was very familiar to Judas. Remember, back in chapter 13, Jesus told Judas, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Right? He even identified Judas to John. John asked, you know, who are you talking about? When you say someone's going to betray you, who is it? And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I give this morsel of bread after I dipped it. Jesus knew it was Judas. He knew what Judas had gone to do. And yet Jesus does not seek to hide from Judas. He doesn't think Judas is coming to arrest me. I should go somewhere that's not familiar to Judas or maybe he won't find me. Jesus does not hide. Instead, he goes to this garden where he says that they went frequently. Uh, it says in verse 2 that Jesus often met there with, with his disciples and Judas knew the place. So Jesus is not hiding. He's not seeking to avoid what's coming. In fact, he knows everything that's coming. Verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. None of it was hidden from Jesus. None of it would take Jesus by surprise. In fact, he's been telling his disciples what's going to happen. Not only that he's going to die, that he's going to leave, but also that he's going to be betrayed, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to be crucified. He knows all of this, and he shrinks back from none of it. Instead, he steps forward when Judas shows up with his band of soldiers. Verse 4 says again, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, what did he do? Came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus is not hiding in the back of the crowd, hoping they won't notice him. No, he steps forward and says, who are you looking for? Who would you come here for? He takes charge of the situation. Judas is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. He asks them, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers, I am he. Now, your Bible, probably like mine, translates that, I am he, because that's how we would talk. If somebody said, this is who I'm looking for, you would say, that's me. I- I'm, I'm him. But more literally, what Jesus simply says is, I am. That's what he says. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And when he says that, he not only acknowledges that he is the person they are looking for, he is also reminding them of who he is. He takes on his lips in that moment the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, okay, if you're sending me to tell these people that you're going to lead us out, if they say, well, which God are you talking about? What's his name? What am I supposed to say? And God said to Moses, tell them, I am. I am has sent me to you. And that's what Jesus says here when they say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus says, I am. I am the Messiah, and I am God in the flesh. Now when he says that, John tells us something very strange happened. Right? It says, <clears throat> Judas was with him, right? was standing with them, 
And verse 6 says, When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what in the world is happening there? Um, Some people suggest that because it was dark, that Jesus kind of surprised the soldiers when He stepped forward and said, Who are you looking for? I'm Him. I don't... think that makes enough sense of what's happening here. I mean, can a soldier be caught by surprise in the dark? Sure, but they're probably not going to end up on the ground because of that, right? I think what's happening here is that when Jesus says his name, I am, that he also demonstrates his power in such a way that overwhelms the soldiers where they are almost forced to bow before him. They're forced back and down onto the ground. It's, it's an, a demonstration, I think, an evidence of the power of Jesus to remind them and everybody else of who is in control in this situation. Jesus and his disciples are likely outnumbered. Right? If the soldiers were smart, I mean, Judas could tell them exactly how many people were with Jesus. They would almost certainly have come with more people than that. This would be a rather large force, and yet Jesus is demonstrating not only his courage and his willingness to suffer and die, he's still demonstrating his power, showing that these guys can't arrest him unless he lets them, which is exactly what he's going to do. Everything about the way that John describes this scene for us makes it clear that Jesus is not being overpowered, he's not being outmaneuvered, he's not being taken by surprise, he knows exactly what is coming, he's walking into it deliberately and in full control. This is his choice, this is his decision, this is what he is determined to do for us. Knowing everything that's going to happen He shrinks back from none of it. Peter, on the other hand, is a different story. Right? Peter sees what's happening to Jesus and he acts out. He strikes out, in fact. But before that happens, though, Jesus says in verse 8, I told you that I'm he, I'm the one you're looking for, so if you seek me, let these men go. So you came for me, don't mess with them. Take me, but let them go. And John tells us in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now that's a quote just from the previous chapter where Jesus was praying in John chapter 17. And he tells the Father, you know, you gave me these people and I have protected them. I have not lost one of them except for the son of destruction, so the scripture could be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. Judas, of course, left, but that was the way it was supposed to happen. That was the plan. I've not lost any of these others. And in this moment, even as Jesus is offering up himself, he is also continuing to protect and guard and preserve his own disciples. I give myself up, and I ask you to leave these alone. Jesus doesn't need protection, but he's protecting his disciples. But Peter misses the point. Verse 10, it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus is protecting 
Peter and the other disciples, but Peter takes it upon himself to try to protect Jesus, which Jesus doesn't need, and Jesus didn't ask for, and it's not what Jesus wanted Peter to do. We don't know if uh, Peter hit what he was aiming at, or if he missed and just got a piece on accident, but Peter was ready to go down swinging. And Peter's actions here, combined with other things that Peter tells us, show us what Peter was getting wrong, what Peter misunderstood, and honestly what some of us still get wrong and misunderstand even still today. You see, Peter loved Jesus fiercely, right? He's been telling Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm departing, you can't come with me. Peter's like, what do you mean I can't go with you? I'll die with you if I have to. He was ready to fight to the death for Jesus because he loved Jesus fiercely. But even in his deep love for Jesus, he misunderstood what Jesus was doing. Why Jesus was here, what Jesus was aiming to accomplish, and how he was going about it. Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. I put your sword away. Why? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, isn't this why I'm here? Isn't this the Father's plan? Isn't this what I'm supposed to do? Why are you trying to stop that from happening? Why are you trying to stop me from fulfilling the mission that the Father gave me? And this is not the first time that Peter has gotten this badly wrong. Because back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're one of the prophets, and so on. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter made his great confession, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was exactly right. But then, after that, Jesus, Matthew tells us, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter says, I recognize that you are the Messiah. You're the one that God promised to send. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, good, you've got it. Now, let me tell you what kind of Messiah I'm going to be. I'm not going to ride into Jerusalem on a white horse and overwhelm the Romans and defeat them with a mighty army and remove them from the land and restore the glory of David's kingdom on earth like it was before. That's not what I've come to do. I'm going to go into Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of our own people and then I'm going to rise. And Peter says, I don't think so. I don't think so. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You can't die. You're the Messiah. You just got here. You've got to defeat other people. You can't be defeated. That's not how this is supposed to work. But Matthew tells us that Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had missed it so badly 
that Jesus rebuked him by referring to him as Satan. Peter had his mind on the things of man, meaning, you know, life, political power, earthly deliverance, those kinds of, that's what Peter was focused on. Jesus was not focused on those things. He was focused on the things of God. God sent him to sacrifice himself, to love and lay down his life for his people, to secure a eternal salvation through his death and resurrection. That's what Jesus was focused on, and Peter couldn't see it. And even now, after rebuke and correction and more instruction, in this moment, Peter still doesn't get it. He still has his mind set on the things of man rather than on the things of God. And Jesus is saying to him one more time, don't you remember what God's purpose is in all of this? The Father has given me a cup to drink. Shouldn't I drink it? That's why I'm here. So Peter's resisting God's plan and Peter's fighting for the wrong kind of kingdom. A little bit later in chapter 18, Jesus is going to say something that not only reveals a lot about Jesus, but also reveals a lot about what Peter got wrong. And when Jesus appears before Pilate later in chapter 18, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Which of course he was, but not in the sense that Pilate and everybody else would have been thinking of as a king who wanted to rule in Jerusalem and get rid of the Romans and all that. So Jesus answers him in 1836. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then notice this choice of words. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If I was the kind of king that you are thinking I am, Pilate, my disciples would have been doing what Peter started trying to do. They all would have been fighting for me with swords. I would have had an army of guards around me protecting me from being delivered over to the Jews. If I was the kind of king you think I am, if I was seeking to establish the kind of kingdom that you think I'm trying to establish, but I'm not. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this world. And that's why I have come willingly. That's why my servants weren't fighting you. That's why I'm not arguing with you for my innocence, trying to get you to release me. I'm a different kind of king, bringing a different kind of kingdom. Now, to be fair to Peter, he was not the last person to misunderstand those things. He was not the last person to try to wield the sword as though Jesus' kingdom is from the world and he's far from the only person to think of the kingdom of God in terms of a political kingdom on the earth. But Peter had a better excuse than those who have followed his mistake. Peter hadn't yet seen what Jesus was doing. Peter hadn't yet seen not only Jesus' willing death, but also his victorious Resurrection. Peter hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit, as he did on the day of Pentecost. Peter's mistake and Jesus' rebuke are plainly written for us in the Scripture, so there's no reason why we should think that Jesus wants us to pick up a sword, either to defend his kingdom or to defend him. He doesn't need it. 
That's not how His kingdom works. Jesus does not ask us to fight for Him, but to bear witness to Him. He doesn't send Peter and the other disciples into Jerusalem armed to the teeth. Instead, He sends them into Jerusalem saying, wait until you receive power from on high. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, then you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what He's called us to do. Peter did eventually learn his lesson. He did eventually get it. That's clear when he stands up to preach on the day of Pentecost. It's clear when he gets arrested for speaking in the name of Jesus and refuses to relent. It's clear when he and the other apostles are beaten for preaching in Jesus' name and they rejoice for having been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. He just didn't get it yet. Finally, why is all this happening? Why is Jesus doing this? There's not as many explanations of the significance, the meaning of Jesus' death in the Gospels as we might expect. There's not as many as you see, for example, in like Paul's letters or Peter's letters, where there's detailed explanations about here's what Jesus was accomplishing through his death. But they are here in the Gospels if we look for them and know where to find them. And there's one here in verses 12 to 14. After Jesus is arrested, he's taken uh, to the house of Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who's the high priest. And so that's the first place he goes. And John could have stopped there. But he doesn't. Instead, in verse 14, he reminds us of what we already know, because he already told us back in chapter 11, that Caiaphas is the one who told the Jews when they were trying to figure out what to do about Jesus, Caiaphas is the one who said, you guys just don't understand what's going on here. You don't understand that it is better that one man should die for, that the, for the nation than that the whole nation should perish. If we let Jesus keep performing miracles and doing all these things, and more and more people follow Him, and more and more people believe in Him, then the Romans are going to get nervous, and we're going to have probably an insurrection or something on our hands, and then they're going to bring down the full might of Rome and crush that rebellion, and they're going to just wipe us all out. So better than that is that we just kill Jesus. Then one person dies, and everybody else is fine. But what John tells us, in that moment, is that Caiaphas, being high priest that year, prophesied about the death of Jesus. He didn't realize he was doing that, right? He was making a gross political calculation, right? He was making a terrible, immoral decision, advocating for the death of Jesus. But, What he was also saying, and didn't realize he was saying, is that Jesus would, in fact, die for the nation, die for the people. And he goes on, John goes on to tell us, not only for the nation, not only for the Jews, but for all who would believe in him, for the other sheep who were not of that fold that John or that Jesus talked about as well. So the significance of Jesus' death, he's drinking the cup that the Father gave him to drink, which is necessary for him to drink, so you and I don't have to drink. So we don't have to endure God's punishment, God's wrath against our sin. Jesus endures it in our place. And not only that, but he 
dies as our substitute, right? He dies so that we don't have to die. He experiences all of that wrath and suffering that our sins deserve so that Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that we can be forgiven, so that we can be righteous, so that we can have life. All of that is why he lays down his life for us on the cross. The reason Jesus' death in our place is so powerful, why the story is so moving, is because of how much it cost. He laid down his life when he didn't have to. He became one of us when he didn't have to, so that he could lay down his life, which he didn't have to do, in order to save us. And it's so moving because at any moment, he could have said, nah, no thanks. I don't want to die. At any moment, he could have escaped. In fact, while he was on the cross, there were people who mocked him saying, he saved others. Here he is, he can't save himself. And they didn't understand how right they were. But not in the sense that they thought. That Jesus could not spare his own life if he was going to spare ours. If he was going to save us. No one forced him to do it. He didn't do it by accident. He chose to do it. Willingly, deliberately, died for us. So that death itself would one day be defeated. And we could enjoy life with him forever. Let's pray.